How's How it are go- you? Good. Oh. It's been so long. Oh, jeez. I've lost track of time. Yeah. It's because it's winter all the time. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I... How's that? How's the toddler? Well, he's all right. He's yeah. um he's sleeping right now, which is good because it's nighttime. He's, he um is he's trying to encourage that pattern. We're trying to encourage that pattern. We started when he was born, and uh, now it seems to have taken. Only took seventeen months. There's a Facebook group I subscribe to called Ottawa Moms Bring On the Drama. Because I don't know if you um lurk on any mom sites like buy and sell mom sites i don't well which is probably an okay thing yeah the word lurk maybe is not the right word but in any case there's always um quote-unquote drama which is you know a little cattiness or bitchiness that comes across when prices are considered inflated or so-and-so didn't show up to pick it up blah 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 so, and there's always a rule that says no drama. So somebody founded their own site that was just supposed to be all drama. It's supposed to be all that stuff. So you can be bitchy, you can be snarky, you just can't be an asshole. And that, I'd say, is a very fine line. However, so the post I was looking at um, was a woman, I, I don't know if you guys have uh, had a lot of this in the, the news where you guys are, but the whole U of O rape culture scandal okay like uh yeah. like fraternities chanting stupid things yeah stupid and... things and you know possibly an alleged sexual assault by that involved multiple hockey players from the U of O team and this whole kind of question of rape culture is very prevalent in on cbc in ottawa right now <laughs> and so i um there was a mom who was posting about thinking about it in re- relationship to her son, which, you know, is one of the, is kind of thematically linked to m- myself as a parent. Cause I always, I'm always kind of thinking about as most parents do, like, how can I teach him right from wrong? Like how can I impress on him some clear, humane, humanistic values that, um, where people, you know, consider each other equal, like, and what are the specific tools that I can pass on to him? And um, somebody had talked about like the, um, on this, Marcus and I talk about this too, like porn literacy, mm-hmm. literacy of pornography, and understanding that uh, pornography is not real, that that there's as much acting in pornography as there is in any other television show. Uh, so it, it's just some, that's, that's kind of, you know, in these deep, dark winter days, that's one of the things that's been um, floating around in my mind, perhaps making the days a bit darker, is how to teach uh, healthy sexuality to my kid, which, you know, feels kind of weird to think about because he's 17 months, but I feel like it's important to consider now because it might take me that long to figure out how to do it. Yeah. It's a tricky one. I feel like I have, I should have wisdom, but I don't. Um, Or, well, I have like 
I have being raised by a feminist lesbian before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the eighties, before it got all hip in the nineties. Now it's right. now it's so passe. Right. Uh, now it's a derigger. Um, so do you re- do you recall? Like, yeah, I mean, she, specific like, things that your your mom would say to you. I mean, one like I was I was really unimpressed. Generally, when I stopped being able to go to take back the night marches, like there was a point at which I was no longer a child. Oh, uh, and you couldn't go because couldn't you were considered as, a man. Yeah, and that was a uh, an interesting point. But like she would give me like whatever the like already awkward conversations about sex are she would any book that she bought on like like what whatever the like what you're going through book i don't know there's i don't know if there's it's a common one but whatever the book was she had gone through and annotated it so it was less heteronormative right which you know was just a thing like oh mom um (laughs) Like there wasn't stuff. There was just, but I was also a, like I was just around a lot of a lot of potlucks. Like I was around a lot of macrame. <laughs> no, no, they weren't crafty. They were the like they were the political. Like there were all these political meetings, and she talked. Right. I mean, so her stuff was weird because she talked about keeping me away from like man hating lesbians. Like that there were people in the community who who she wouldn't hang out with because she didn't want that that vibe. Um, but it was so, you know, like stuff around consent was so politicized from such a young age that... I don't remember sort of any exact moments of that. The strongest memory I have is this getting this, for giving me this book and then her being like, well, I've made some notes, <laughs> you know, Jim's getting an erection. Cause he's uh, pretty, he likes a girl note. Like it could also be a boy. Just so you know, and that's okay. And that's okay. So yeah. So it's not like it was so inherent in the culture that I was around. That there, that I don't have any words of wisdom, other, right? Uh, you know, other than it's like let them hang out with your friends and you've got, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and be and upfront behave, about and it and be upfront about it. Yeah. They're listening to this SWS podcast with me, Adrian Wong, and you, and, and me, Jacobson. I feel like we can we can. You know, because I can edit that into, into anywhere. That, that this is the this is the SWS podcast. That's that's both uh, Small Wooden Shoe and Spiderweb Show, both of which are on the internet. That's right. Amongst other places, although I guess Spiderweb Show is really kind of only on the internet. That's right. It really is only on the internet and in people's hearts. Um, <laughs> the internet but... is in my heart. But the internet is where people can find the show notes, where we make big mm-hmm. lists of everything we've talked about with links. And yep. today we're gonna we've we've lined up some, some um, topics. We, yeah, we've we've lined up some topics, and one of them is kind of, I think, flows right out of what we were talking about, which is advice <laughs> from senior yep. artists to younger artists. 
how to be participate in rape culture. I would there's uh, I, there's I would like to give that advice. Well, that kind of harkens back to one of the first conversations we had. Yeah, I'm going to turn off my feminism now to watch this show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is like ninety percent of content yep. in the world, if not more. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite, what would you tell a young artist moving into the field that you've chosen? Um, I mean, I, the best, Jean Mapugo was a actress and a Dal student who like ran, was directing our drama club. She would just like read everything. And that proved very useful for me for a long time, I think. Uh, she gave me a book of Kenneth Tynan reviews and I was like, read everything and leave town, uh, mm. which I did, which I translate into be curious and follow that curiosity, which is, is just what I think is, is sort of still the most useful thing, like to find out, to find out the things that you're, that I'm interested in was this process of getting my hands on as much as I could and and consuming it and thinking about what I thought and reading about what other people thought and finding the people around who were interested in similar things and finding out what they were doing and looking at and the history and all of that stuff. And then, yeah, and so be curious and follow and work to follow that curiosity hmm. and that that will be work. Like that was one of the things that I always felt like I being in Halifax before internet, like it was so exciting for me to have, to be able to get into the Dow library and see all those books and, uh, and read and just be able to like find one book that I was interested in and then take all the other books around it on the bookshelf down and flip through those too. Mm. That that was such a, and cause there wasn't stuff to watch. There weren't shows, there weren't big shows coming through. Right. There wasn't much of an indie scene at that point. And, and it was, there were some, there were a few things that would happen at Neptune that I might be interested in, but not much. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so interesting you bring up the idea of the library and and, and um you know finding a mm-hmm. book and then the associative nature of library bookshelves because that's one thing um the pleasurable things i remember about libraries is and and how you could just kind of wander through them because you'd find one thing and then start just browsing nearby and um i don't think that that really happens on the internet because it's so tied to keywords and and it's so you know you can really pinpoint what you're looking for but you don't necessarily get the tangential things beside it absolutely i think that that ability to wander and to find the next thing and to to get get something wrong and then be like oh but this is even better and did you have the thing that i had which is where you always get out more books than you could possibly ever read I did that, and then I would rack up so many fines because of that theory, because I mm-hmm. would not read them. Uh, 
that I would then end up like working in the library with these big stacks of books. Right. But I think it also led me at some point to be like I was sort of focused on image making in part because all I was doing was looking at pictures. Mm -hmm. Like Theater Forum magazine was such a big deal because it just had pictures of peanut bow shows and and Worcester group shows and Tadishi Suzuki and, and like just had these shows that were sort of magical other thing mm -hmm. and and that was so exciting and I could find them at the library and you could never find them in a bookstore and you couldn't just order them online or and so do you think that your practice I mean you've kind of hinted at this but mm -hmm. how do you think that affected your practice because you're experiencing theater through the static image of a stage rather than experiencing theater through the, you, you know, like the stuff that really turned you on and got, got you excited is, is a static image in a magazine, um, in those early formative years. Uh, I'm just curious if, if you feel like that has left a stamp on, on the work you're doing now. I think so. I mean, there, you know, there were certainly, some live performances that were important mm -hmm. at the same time, Irondale Ensemble, Mystery Boop, and, and then Just in Time, who were mimes, because uh, I was much more into that then. But yeah, I think, I mean, one, it, it meant, like now I feel like even saying this, I was like, oh, wow, I used to be reading a lot. Like I used to and I don't so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of okay with that. I go through phases and I still buy more books than I can read. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also, I think it was like, I could just imagine the shows and that might've been in some ways more helpful or something. Like I wasn't, I didn't know what the shows actually were like. And so I, so so there's a way in which I'm still like I sort of imagine fragments of a thing and then I that I want to see and then I build the rest of the show towards that. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. so much of my process that that I can that I think when that I've almost returned to more recently that what I was doing at SFU when I was drawing, I was storyboarding stuff. Mm hmm. And, and I've gotten closer to that again, like the summer show, I'm, I'm storyboarding parts of it. And that's, that feels maybe related to those images. It's certainly, yeah, it's not a thing about seeing them and experiencing them. And, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, so also the things that shaped me at that point were that I was going to a lot of the music scene in Halifax was a big deal. Mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, and so that was really exciting. And I was going to those a lot. And so I can, you know, post hoc and maybe not entirely truthfully, like put, put those two together, put together, like looking at art form and Brecht books and being really into, you know, I, I auditioned for SFU with a hundred new interview in, um, text the year they didn't take me <laughs> like they were with like, a Heiner Mueller yeah 
like this like really pretentious thing from Hamlet Machine. Um, and they were like, maybe you need to settle down for a year. We think you should go into first year. Oh, so you, you auditioned. I auditioned to be in your year. Oh, but you had already done a year at Dell. I had no, done a right? year at Dell. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they or, were like, mm, you need to soak in the <laughs> West Coast airs a little bit more <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> before we want you. You need to yeah, chill to, out a little yeah, and do, and down. maybe next year you'll do a text that you understand. <laughs> they didn't say that. <laughs> they though. didn't say that. But I now, in retrospect, say that to myself. <laughs> uh, I did a piece where... Um, I did a piece from Moo by Sally Clark mm -hmm. where the character I was playing, Moo, the mm -hmm. titular Moo, was um, incarcerated in, a, in an insane asylum and as a comedy. And so I went in with my long sleeve shirt tied behind my back with my arms wrapped around because she was in a strap, yeah. uh, street jacket and my bunny slippers. And I'll never forget it because Penelope Stella... Yeah. who was there with Mark Diamond, um, gave me, she redirected my little one-minute monologue uh, to talk to my slippers, which um, really opened me right up. <laughs> and they were probably like, her? <laughs> that yeah. crazy person? With the slippers? We work with her. With the slippers. Oh, um, well, one piece of advice that has stuck with me is, um, I can't remember the name of the book exactly, but it was something like Working on New Plays by some New York guy. Anyhow, um, and he worked on Broadway. And one of the things that he said was, never leave your artistic home. Um, so to me, that just speaks to something that... Uh, to something that was expressed differently in one of the lists that you sent me, which is, you know, when you find a good group of collaborators to hold on to that and to hold on to the, that community because uh, that trust is hard to build and, and is so valuable in a social art form. So I think that I would give that as, as advice, which is, you know, find, find your artistic home and, and obviously I would say you don't necessarily have to physically be there because so much of the work that I'm doing, I feel like I do virtually or over the internet and I still feel really fed by that. But um, there's artistic relationships and not necessarily relationships where you're making things together, but you're just in conversation and that have fed me a lot over the years. And so I would pass on that piece of advice. And yeah, that would be it. And I would say, like, be nice. Yeah, That's like a good the one. nicer you are, people want to work with nice people. So mm -hmm. be nice. Play, play nice. I remember. Um, I don't know if you did the same. Uh, Mark Diamond, one of our other professors, had like there was a day where he just like gave us this list of. Like, bring a newspaper to rehearsal. Uh, nobody will ever ask you what you're reading if you're reading the newspaper. And so if you need people not to talk to you, you can always read the newspaper. Bring twice as many cigarettes to the cast party. People will always ask, them, ask mm -hmm. for cigarettes. 
never steal from the theater. Um, <laughs> What's another one I remember is um, always buy your own drinks. Right. Always leave the party when you're still having fun. Yeah. Um, say, I, don't think, I don't think I've succeeded at that one. No. I think I've kept it in my mind. But. Say hello to everyone when you walk into the workroom. Yeah. I do that. There's also uh, Michael Benedetti. I, I mean, I love, I just bought a book, a, like 1970s book on radio production that I haven't really dug into yet. But the books right now that I love are like old instruction manuals for how to do mm -hmm. things, like really before it became this like, no, you know, find your find your bliss, you're a unique flower. Uh, when it was like, no, here's how you direct a play. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, certainly the stuff around find finding people, finding the right people. Mm -hmm. And that can take a really long time and be weird and cycle back, you know, that, that weird this podcast. Yes, exactly. That thing of, it's been a while. It's a disturbingly long amount of time that we've known each other. Yeah, let's not put a number to that. Another piece of advice that I, that um, Nathan's management podcast gave him is uh, if you're the boss, you should never leave the building alone. No, is that right? No, that's for women. If <laughs> at night. No, it's it's um you should never drive home alone. You should always be driving somebody home. Yeah, that's that's more to the point. Right. And I'm like I don't but on my bike, I feel like that's No, it's different. Position. That's not driving, that's riding. <laughs> position. Sorry, somebody has to double with me. Yeah. For me to be a good boss. No, I, I, my, the, the basis of my relationship with Kugler is that he would drive me home after uh, rehearsals for seven years at a bit part, but he would drive me home. There you go. Um, yeah, and you had amazing conversations, I bet. Yeah. No, no, that's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sorry I encouraged you to say that. <laughs> um, the the piece of advice that I found on the internet that I really liked is Ira Glass's advice to new to new people doing yeah. people who are beginners. Have you watched uh, the whole of those videos? Because that quote that so the Ira Glass quote about for newcomers new makers is from there's four talks on that he does on storytelling that are an interview mm -hmm. that you can watch on the internet or you could just play it in the background and pretend that it's radio because he sounds a lot like he does oh, on oh, the radio. Oh, that's what I'll do. I'll yeah. do that. And, and they're great. They have, he has lots of other advice too. Like he just, he does his little breakdown of, of anecdote and reflection, which he says is the structure of all radio. This happens and then this happens and then this happens. And here's what that means. And this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and that's what that meant. Like that—that's mm. the structure of this American life stories, and that—that's the structure of this American life stories. My yeah. friend um, Yvonne, who works at CBC for the Current mostly, but also does docs and stuff. She's she feels like this American life is formulaic, right? And which it is, because you've just described the formula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, carry on. So he's got this whole series. So he's got this whole series. Though. But but yes, the part that I have 
for quite a few years at Dance Makers. And so I've been showing that that clip where he says, like, the thing that nobody tells you is that your taste is really good. Like, the reason that you got into whatever you're into is because you have really good taste. And, and for a long time, your taste, your, what you're making isn't going to match your taste. And therefore, you might quit because you're at the stage where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I know that this thing I'm doing is terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that you just need to get through that phase. And he does, in the longer clip, it's great because he plays a new story from him that's terrible. And that he just sort of makes fun of himself. Well, that's good. I mean, it's not, what's great is is um, the I love it when artists or makers take the time to show us their crappy stuff mm-hmm. because um, it gives a lot of insight into that idea of the ten thousand hours or whatever the idea that practice make perfect or yeah. if not perfect, then at least you're practicing. Well, you're going to let that. That the more you do something, the better you get at it. Yeah. Did you hear that thing about um, why girls, women tend to not succeed? One theory about why women tend to not succeed as much as men. Mm. <laughs> the like... patriarchy. Sorry, that's a yeah. terrible, that's a terrible segue. Did you hear that thing? <laughs> Did you hear that thing? Um, yeah. Yes. Let I've me start that things. one again. Yeah. So there's this theory that one of the reasons women may not succeed as much as men is because as children, um, uh, girls tend, tend to, and of course this is all th- theoretical, tend to have, be less rambunctious, less, um, less hard to control than boys. And so they're often told, you're such a good girl, mm-hmm. um, you know, good good job all that kind of like positive reinforcement whereas boys are hearing like you know you got to work hard to control yourself you need to you know good work on try on stay saying seated at the table or whatever like that Mm. that the emphasis for boys is on the effort it takes to do whatever whereas girls are congratulated or praised for doing the thing so Mm. the theory is that that women internalize this notion that performance is an inherent thing. You either are good or you're not good, whereas boys internalize the effort it takes to achieve something. And so when faced with a challenge, um, girls and women will feel like, oh, I can't do this. I guess I can't do this. Or I'm not good at this. Whereas uh, boys and men will be faced with a challenge and be like, oh, I can't do this. But if I work hard enough, then I will be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's that's a funny, like, second order of socialization. Because, like, the, the behave well instruction is so often put on women and girls early. Like, boys are allowed to misbehave in certain ways like that that stage of being rambunctious versus behaving well is already Mm -hmm. a layer of uh social narrative like that's yeah socially constructed yeah Uh, or yeah and 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 made real by the way that that rewards and 
mm-hmm. punishment is dished out and ex- and just and just flat out expectation yeah i have a couple sweaters that when elky wears them he's more often um mistaken for a girl mm-hmm. and people have said to said to us that he's so he's so um beautiful that he's too beautiful to be a boy people have said that to us <laughs> at um, 17 months and then when he wears this yellow sweater, which is yellow and pink and blue and brown and gray or whatever, like he's more often mistaken for a girl. Right. Um, and I was just thinking about how great it is when you're a baby that it actually doesn't matter what your gender is. Like everybody's happy to see you. Like it doesn't matter your sex, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your preference. Like everybody's just happy to see this small little human. And then all of the... And I wish that I could dress him. I feel like I dress him fairly gender neutrally, but Mm -hmm. I guess my gender neutral kind of leans towards the masculine boy. Mm -hmm. That must, I I would say that my personal style maybe is masculine boy. (laughs) Like you're dressing him no differently than you would dress a girl. It just happens that he's a boy. And so it fits differently. I would love to, I would love to dress. Well, there's all this stuff like green, green clothing costs more. Because it's what? gender neutral. Yeah. It's gender neutral clothing is more expensive. Shut the front door. That's crazy. Because mm-hmm. it's there's less demand, goes the argument. But of course that demand is created by et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, I went to the bay to get some clothes for him and the girls section is three times larger than the boys section. Like it's insane, and you can immediately spot it because it's pink. And the boys' section is, you know, there's not really a lot of choice. I should I should have compared prices. I got him a little pair of jeans. How did we um, go off? So, so we tend oh, to ramble, apparently. Yeah, I think we do. <laughs> I think we ramble a little bit because you and I both like telling stories, and then of course because. We also like to contextualize our stories and make sure everybody understands the backstory of the story and, and, you know, and I think perhaps the overly long um, introduction or prologue to an idea is sometimes a way of apologizing for having an opinion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's funny when I'm listening to the other podcasts that I listen to, I'm always struck by the forcefulness of people's opinion or the manner of those expressions. And, and I mean, I think I am generally in the world and I think it's true that I will tend to sort of back away from, from the strong statement and, and try to frame it to make sure that everyone, yeah, that it's contextually safe. I'm not going to say that whatever it is, that I'm going to say by blathering about it. I keep going yeah. <laughs> to jump in. Have you ever been in a situation where you were forced to not ramble? Would you like to be in one now? <laughs> <laughs> in one now? Even, even in this one where we talked about like, okay, let's be more structured and, and our alarm would have gone off a while ago that oh, to let shoot, people I know to set the alarm <laughs> to let, yeah exactly to let people know that they're listening to the sws podcast uh with jacob and adrian 
on the mm-hmm. internet. On the internet, small wooden shoe and spider web show. Yeah, and and on the iTunes. Um, that one of the things about podcasting is that it doesn't have to follow the the draw the quite the same drive as radio does. And mm-hmm. that's one of the benefits of this form is that anybody who's listening to this isn't like flipping channels because they would have flipped by, right? Or right. they're they're making a commitment and we can do some editing, but it's a different medium than radio. And so one of the things that it allows is the more casual conversational programming. Right. Yeah, and it doesn't demand your attention. I think, you know, you're onto something there um, because of that, you know, you bring up TV, you bring up radio, you bring up all these things that are driven by time in some ways. But maybe podcasting is a return to a kind of entertainment that uh, gives the audience member the freedom to come and go, for their attention to come and go. And I'm thinking about um, classical Greek theater as produced and performed by the Greeks of ancient times, as well as Beijing opera, where, where you'd have performances or plays that would take days and, and people would come with their families and they would eat and drink and talk and chit chat and then shush each other for their favorite parts. Um, I don't think that there's anything like that in our current, I mean, the closest I can think of is something like roller derby. Yeah, I th- I mean I think TV does that, right? The Yeah, but TV they're trying like TV they're trying to do all of the hooks they can to keep you long enough to watch the commercials, right? Sure. Like, so the no, so the way and I guess what I was specifically thinking about is like binge watching either DVDs or internet. Where So it so it happens when um the media and the mediums are democratized. Like this is a natural way in which humans want to consume information, which is kind of like throw it all at me and I'll come and go and while I'm doing the dishes and I might have to leave the room and then I'll rewind and that's fine. Or I can ask the guy next to me, did I miss anything? And he'll say no. And then I'll just keep going and, and it's fine. Like I, it seems to me that all of the best efforts of people who are making content, whether it's on TV or film or radio, are trying to engage and keep the attention engaged Whereas perhaps there's the possibility that as humans, our brains need to disengage every so often to reflect. This happened, this happened, this happened, and then I reflect. Um, Or to take a break or to like, well, those are the only two I can think of. So perhaps that only happens when the user is in charge of how the media is being used or in our case, we are users, but we're also creators. And, and in the world of podcasting, the podcast is not being driven by commercial radio conventions. It's being kind of driven by a nor- more organic decision-making level. Binge-watching is totally at, I mean, I know binge-watching. And, yeah, it's not like house does not want me to watch 12 episodes in a row. But when you, you, yeah, when you do, you know, you realize they're just one episode. 
So depending on what you're kind of stuffing into your ears, whether it's TV or procedurals or John le Carre or, or biographies, like, do you feel like it comes out in your work? Like in, because all of those things are structured differently, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's the 44 minute hour, the 22 minute half hour there and, and the real kind of clear three act structure with the blah, 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 and the blah, 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 and the yak, yak, yak. So I wonder if that, um, filters through into whatever you're working on. And and this is actually a segue into our other topic that we want to talk about, which is how we structure our work. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I think the, the way that I think about structure is informed by all of those. I, I think the, by all of the things that I watch and listen to, because that was a piece of advice that Mark Diamond gave, which mm-hmm. is if you're writing, don't watch TV. Right. Like, don't don't internalize that. Do what structure. you can to um, clean yourself of the scourge of the formulaic 3X structure that is so prevalent on television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that was probably especially true in the late nineties when we were at university. We were not in the heyday of longer form drama. Right. Um, it was pretty bleak times on the television. I seem to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I am. I'm not a don't take stimulus in. I tend to binge on whatever structure it is that I'm working on. So when I'm thinking about, oh, I want to make a noir, I'll, I'll watch a lot of noirs. And, and so well, many, yeah. And so many. That's so that, pomo of you. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, and I'm, but I'm also, I always feel self-conscious because I'm not paying the kind of attention that I think I should be paying to them in terms of like, I'm not intensely watching them and and taking notes or anything, but I'm, I've always been struck. There's an Ambogar quote somewhere that maybe just Mallory said about information overload equals pattern recognition. And so I think I've done that. I think that's part of how I internalize structures is that there's just a huge amount of overload that I just take a lot in and and that creates some emerging patterns that I can work with. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I wish I were better at sometimes at being able to listen to something and, and and really get its structure. I mean, I can once I start paying attention to it. Like for Fun Palace, I watched a lot of the Muppet Show. Mm-hmm. Muppet Show Partially. is very... It's great. And, you know, and it's short. It's like half an hour and they're really, they're like, they're in and out super fast. And that's partially they can edit. Yeah, but they and... get better too. Like you see them learning. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Do you watch, do you, and I know lots of people who stopped going to see shows and stop input while they. Mm, 
I find when I'm writing and I go and see shows, I find it a little demoralizing because, I mean, it's just one of those things where if you're kind of preoccupied with an idea or a story, then you start to see it everywhere. So Mm -hmm. I'll go and see something or read something and feel like, oh, well, they're doing this idea and they're doing it so much better than I could do it. So why am I even bloody trying? So um, I do try and be judicious about what I see in order to avoid myself the, the sadness um because the sadness isn't always productive um but also i think i mean if we as we've talked about before like i haven't seen very much lately so now i'm definitely much more interested in going to see things and and much more um present as an audience member and and i think i'm pretty good at picking out structure like after the fact being able to watch something and then kind of think through and understand a structure or at least the turning points like, Oh, there's a turning point. Oh, there's a turning point. And, and to me, those happen in two different ways. One is the, the plot structure or the, the storytelling um, of the, this happens, then this happens and this happens kind of way. And then the other way is the energetic story or the energetic arc, which um, I don't think it gets talked about, as much as it should, but they're uh, two separate arcs for me when I'm watching things and hopefully they align when they're working really well, they align. And then when they're not, they don't, when they don't, they're not whatever I meant by that. And then, you know, and, and the most obvious example of that is like the false ending, like where the plot story wants to keep going but the energetic story is over yes so yeah i mean i talk about energetic structures a lot because i'm working in dance right and that's or in i'm working i'm either working in dance or i'm working in episodic performance where there's not the, the one hour is not a single story. It's, it's a bunch of objects or it's a bunch of, it's a variety of things. Mm-hmm. And so right. the, um, even for something like dedicated to the revolutions was like that, not, not only the variety show, but was a bunch of skits. It, we would never have used that word because we were being serious, but at some levels it was a bunch of skits. And serious skits. Serious skits. Well, they were funny. Um, but oh, seriously funny. Yeah, seriously funny. So, so the thought of like, how do we go? How do? Where does the audience start, and where do they end? And how did we get there? And how do I manage their attention? Uh, an amazing, an amazing book for all of this. And this came out of invasion is the choreographer's handbook. Oh yeah, by Dustin Jonathan talks Burroughs. about that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think I gave it to him. Um, will you, um, well, will. you'll post yeah. a link to it cause yeah. I'd like to take a look at that. It's, and he's great cause he's talking very much about dance and with a bit of a leaning towards sort of formalist dance. So Merce Cunningham, abstract ballet, abstract work. Mm-hmm. And, and he has a bunch of stuff that's from music about structure so you know the stuff that i talk about a lot is or find myself is the rate of change 
and not only not only must things change, but the rate at which things change must change. Mm -hmm. And the sort of ideas of tracking just that change in energy over the course of of the period of time that you're spending with an audience, and that that's a lot of what I'm thinking about when I think about structure is do we need to pick me up here? Can this, can this be slow? Can this have we, I mean, I think was it you, I feel like it's you that I know tempo bank from the tempo bank. That's um, that's Norman armor. Oh. Um, hmm, structure. Well, so how, like uh, when you were doing the pod plays, mm -hmm. how were you? thinking about oh. structure for those oh well i was thinking about them in a very basic way which is you start somewhere you end somewhere and you have to get there <laughs> mm -hmm. so you know and and then the kind of the question to the writer is always like what where are we going and why is it why are we going there and why is it important that i go with you and I, the listener, like, what is it that's driving this walk? What is it that's motivating us to move through space? And because, you know, at the beginning, and I don't know, now I'm starting to have a question, like, does the speaker need to know where they're going at the beginning when they're talking to you? Like, do they have some more specific in mind? And the answer could be yes, the answer could be no, and then the choices would be different. Hmm. I think that the pod plays are mostly, I would say, kind of cl classical Aristotelian structure, beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. um, I think that probably uh, David McIntosh's um, piece was probably the most the the one that most deviated from that, just because it was more of an energetic. Um, structure so you start out in the open and then you walk into the darkness and mm -hmm. there's a sense of being kind of compressed as you walk through this this service essentially a service tunnel it's a road but it <laughs> goes under um canada place and and then you emerge out again so there there's really a sense it's it the story doesn't stick the story of that one doesn't stick with me as much as the the physical experience of it um so for me, when they really work is when the the story and the physical experience uh, really are in alignment. Um, and I, you know, I try to also use pace or tempo to drive the somatic experience of the listener. So in the last movement of mine, which is called Look Up, you're really walking and pushing the pace and I'm trying to make them cover a fair amount of ground in a short period of time. And so with the hope that it's going to increase the blood flow, increase the heart rate and that sort of thing. So you, you know, make the listener more open to a feeling <laughs> or, the, or to mistake the physiological experience for a feeling. Um, so that's how I thought of them. I never, and I, I don't think I, I thought thought about structure in a way that deviated very much from classical story storytelling, which I feel like I, I feel like I'm apologizing for, 
Um, but I don't know why. <laughs> I would apologize for that. I think it's okay. For, I think it's okay yeah. that they were classical three act structures. I remember, and I didn't. I don't. I didn't do them all. Did David's? I mean, I remember liking that when it was structured like the geography. Mm-hmm. Like there was one, and and it's probably fine. I don't remember whose it was. That was more a fiction that was going on while I was walking, mm-hmm. and I remember wanting it to be more about my walking, more structured around my walking than this conversation that I couldn't have been hearing. Mm-hmm. Like it, what it felt outside of either the structures of you know I'm so used to walking around a city with headphones on. And so David's, I remember feeling a bit like a tour guide, like he was guiding me. Mm -hmm. That's a way that I, I mean, that's what I do around structure, I think, is that I think about other types of performances and what kind of structures they have and how close to that is the type of performance that I'm engaged in. So Upper Toronto was all about simulating community consultations and taking the structures from community consultations and design pitches and trying to turn those into a thing that we could do. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, or having done dance pieces where like the difference between one workshop and the next is whether it was structured like a, a record or whether it was structured like a concert and those are structured differently. So it feel I feel like there's um there's kind of a gray space between structure and form or format or platform. Um Yeah. Probably. Because uh I feel like you you are using the word structure as I might use the word format. Right. I guess that the the kind of main structure I use is beginning, middle, end. Yeah. Because everything has that. <laughs> but I am really interested, like even those things that you're talking about, like the the design presentation, like the design presentations that really kill are um, the ones that have a really clear beginning, middle, end in the Aristotelian sense. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have been, I have heard... Recently, I was in the background of a, somebody was doing a little talk at the Center for Social Innovation about the use of story in, like, fundraising campaign videos or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think about doing that kind of work myself. And it was interesting because I was having all these, like, experimental theater maker reactions it's like oh these are like this is this is becoming the formula and i guess that's the problem with any of these structures is that once they become formula yeah, well so, they are formula yeah well but the the idea of, of fulfilling expectations in unexpected ways mm-hmm. and and so structure you know that structure can be hidden rather than in the forefront and then I always think of this quote from Jean-Luc Godard when asked, like, but surely, sir, you, 
filmmaker, uh, you you agree that a film must have a story must have a beginning, middle, and end. And he says, yes, of course, the story should have a beginning, middle, and end, but not necessarily in that order. Hmm. Which I have no idea how to do, but I love it as an answer to that question. <laughs> in a period of time when he was not making films that had clear narrative structures. Yeah, it's so confounding now when I watch something that doesn't have an, a clear narrative structure because I'm like, what? What's happening? What's happening? And it takes, you know, it takes some time to uh, relax from from the checklist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the checklist touch, but like the checklist of like, okay, there's the, and then there's next thing's going to happen. Like there's a way in which um, the structure, the form, the formula of the three act structure and the inciting incident and all that stuff allows the audience member who's internalized it to somehow be ahead of, you know. Yeah. And that's the critique, right? That's the, the historic critique and current one is that that lulls you into a state where nothing new can happen. You're not paying attention. You're not that, that, that the, the point of art is to make you pay attention. And so the benefit of playing with form, is is to surprise and that if the the formula is a problem because there's no surprise in it that i just go along and i and i get it even structurally and it's interesting the the other thing that's been going around is the sam mendes rules for directors that you sent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i love that number two i mean he starts with choose good collaborators that's right. Uh, Me and Sam, we, we're yeah. one mind. Uh, and then the second one is try to learn how to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar, mm-hmm. which is uh, a direct lifting of Viktor Shlovsky, who is a Russian formulist who Brecht stole from the formulation that then became Verfundum or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the effect alienation as it's poorly translated into, but has been the formulation that I've certainly used a lot in my life is that art makes the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Uh, mm. Or can, right? That, that after leaving a show, I can leave a show going, oh, I, that story that they told is, was so familiar, but they made it weird. They made it seem as if it were new. And, and that thing which was so unusual to me, now, now I recognize it's part of my world. And that is an interesting thing. I mean, so that, 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 that's the thing that form and structure do for me, is allow me to play with the familiar and strange and to go back and forth between those, like what's strange and what's familiar. And I don't think that I'm not so much interested in the only strange and nor am I interested in the only familiar. Mm -hmm. And these days I tend to do familiar structures with slightly strange content. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And that that seems like I have more capacity to, to, 
engage or 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 meet people if the content is a little bit familiar or the 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 form is a little bit familiar and then the content is what is not usually in that form or is a bit different from what's in that form right so you're subverting the form by putting something unfamiliar inside of it yeah, or I'm, I'm subverting the ex expectation because I don't like I don't think the I'm not I'm not critiquing the forms necessarily. I'm just I'm using them and doing something to do something that is not commonly inside of them. Yeah, I'm wonder if perhaps you are critiquing the form <laughs> um but i don't know because i mean I maybe i'm i haven't seen any yeah. of your shows lately <laughs> yeah. um I, and you saw yeah. like speaking of the bad one i'm sorry you had to put up with all of them you know. yeah I, I guess you know like i i was thinking that um now that i'm here in ottawa i realize that i am actually interested in experimental theater and when I was in Vancouver, I just felt like I was interested in theater, but mm -hmm. um, the, you know, people are like, I just want to tell a good story. I, I don't know that I just want to tell a good story. I think that I feel like at the end of an experience, I would like people to feel satisfied, like that they've had a good meal and they're mm -hmm. full and they don't have to go home and open a bag of chips. Um, and and sometimes that sense of satisfaction comes from the resolving a a, a story. Mm -hmm. mm. Like I'm I'm right now I'm kind of in this question about uh, you know the thing I'm working on I think is really really sad and <laughs> so right. I have a lot of um, dialogue with myself about um, the purpose like the the functionality of putting something really really sad out there and mm -hmm. um yeah like i i i don't know if i would want to watch something really really sad but it's it's the thing that's there so i don't know what else to do except for to to you know as you said be curious and honor that curiosity and follow it mm -hmm. and see where it takes me Maybe it won't end up sad. Maybe I'll just feel sad while I'm making it. That you could do this thing, you could get to a point of the writing where then when you're thinking about, okay, how does this go in front of people? What else is necessary? Is there something else that can be done? So in order that the sadness is most usefully experienced. Well, I guess that um, begs the question, how, what is this, the social function of sadness? Yeah, and I think there totally is. Like, I, I'm always really dependent of my desire for a good night out. And I always say, like, and that, of course, includes, like, that can include weeping and, and grief and sadness. I think, you know, the, I'm less, you know, the paralyzing part of sadness is maybe less good. The, the hopelessness. 
mm-hmm. I'm less I'm less interested in that. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, the car uh, wash, the car wash is not a bad thing. Yeah, and and to or to to you know in a world where sadness is hidden away, to have moments where it's articulated that that you know sadness or depression or whatever those things are there and and how how then to find a way to deal with those in public Mm -hmm. in the theater in a in a way that doesn't either isn't either sort of like the world is hopeless go be sad way i don't know i don't know what i'm no, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to come to a, an answer. I think what it, this is, conversation has helped me identify is that it's an active, it's an active question. Right. Like, what is, what is the social function of sadness? Should we throw in a thought this month? The SWS um, um, Spiderweb show resident thinker is Michael Bay Yamamoto of Theatre Replacement in Vancouver. So we could throw in one of her thoughts, right? Here. In the past three months, I've had a couple of embarrassing moments. And you know the kind of haunting you can get around moments like this? Well, when that happens, I try to remember what Anne Bogart says about embarrassment. She talks about it as a necessary leap. And she says, and this is a quote, Embarrassment is a partner in the creative act, a key collaborator. If your work does not sufficiently embarrass you, then very likely no one will be touched by it. She's so smart. She's really smart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, radio jokes. So people have been listening to uh, the SWS podcast. And, And Adrian, where can they find show notes? Oh, show notes can be found in two different locations. First, in the smallwoodenshoe.org website. It's under podcasts, yeah. SWS podcast, then follow the links. This is episode seven. It is. As yet to be titled. And then you can also find them at spiderwebshow.ca. Uh, follow the menu to experiments and then podcast number seven. And um, it'll have a fancy title by then, but it'll be the next one. Yeah. Show notes are there as well as a way to contact me and Jacob and to tweet. You can tweet hashtag yeah. SWS podcast. If you think it's awesome, let us know. And yeah. if you have a topic that you'd like us to consider or an article that we could read, yeah. we're Please. always open to blather on. <laughs> I will um, see you on the interwebs. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. You know, I think that what you said earlier, you know, find your curiosity or your, you know, core self and remain true to it. Yeah. Just stay true to yourself, man. Yeah, man. I'm so against that right now. Don't be friendly to other people. Don't stay true to yourself.